Have you ever scrambled with thoughts on how you were going to entertain your guest at your big event or big event that you were hosting? Why not treat your amazing guest with live music? Allow me to personally recommend to you a saxophonist that's guaranteed to bring his best every time he performs. Verl Tolbert is his name. His bilanguage, his enthusiasm, his smile will tell you his story. Verl played at my wedding and he was also a guest on this podcast, episode number four. A natural entertainer and talented musician, Verl T, the perfect choice for all events and special occasions, playing smooth jazz, R&B, neo-soul, blues, pop, and gospel music are his passion. Saxophonist Verl Tolbert is from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and has been playing saxophone for over 15 years. Verl T plays alto, soprano saxophone, electric wind instrument, also known as the iwi, with a heavy dose of soul. Allow Verl T to help make your event something super special. For booking information, navigate to verlt.com. That's Verl spelled V-E-A-R-L, the letter T, dot com. Recidivism. The rate of a convicted criminal that's going to repeat and do the exact same crime or a crime again and again. The recidivism rate in 2018 was around 77% released within the first five years going back into prison. About a year ago, I received a phone call from a man that goes by the name of J.D. Rutherford. His real name is Jason J.D. Rutherford. I missed his phone call by a guy's Instagram, so I checked out his post, and I thought to myself, yeah, you know, I'm not sure. And so I called him back, inside hoping that he doesn't answer his phone. So J.D. does answer the phone, and 43 minutes later, I hung up the phone, enjoyed the conversation. My wife, Margie, looks at me and says, you have to meet this guy. He sounds legit. And so I did. He spent over half of his life in a state federal penitentiary. His defining moment is brutal and it's sad. This episode we are issuing a listener's and viewer's discretion is advised. It's graphic, it's raw, and it's real. How did JD go back into and fall back into the recidivism rate? How does he actually beat the recidivism rate? What is he doing now? JD, I appreciate the time you took to come onto the podcast. I appreciate every single time that we met for coffee, lunch, or dinner, and the conversations we've had. I am betting that our friendship grows stronger and stronger every day, each time we meet. I appreciate you, man, and I love you, and I'm so thankful for you. Welcome back to Defining Moments Podcast. My name is Wong Lam, and today's special guest is my man, Jason J.D. Rutherford. J.D., welcome to the podcast, brother. Thank you for having me, Juan. Absolutely, man. Number one, my first and favorite question is, how are you doing today? Doing fabulous. Yeah? Well, how, why fabulous? For a bit. Uh, I mean, 
Couldn't have asked for a better Sunday, right? Beautiful yeah. blue skies outside. It's not raining anymore. I mean, I thought I was going to have to build an ark yesterday. It was raining for so long. <laughs> whole house seemed like it was about ready to just go underwater. Yeah. And woke up this morning in 60-something degrees outside. Beautiful blue skies. Wind, wind chills not too cold. Yeah. Sitting right here with my man doing the show. <laughs> it's great. I love it, man. We connected on... Instagram through a mutual friend about a little over almost a year ago, right? And through Rodney, actually. And he told me about you. And he's like, Hey, here's this guy. His name is JD Rutherford. He, he works at Mary Eddie's. Here's its Instagram page. And so, of course, my wife and I, we don't have a research team and we decided to research you ourselves. I pulled up your Instagram page and you, you probably had maybe six posts and what? <laughs> One of the posts I saw was a picture of you. You had a white face. I don't know if it was like Halloween. However, I was like, man, I this this dude, I, I don't know. You called me, Mr. Call. I called you back, Mr. Call. And then you finally called me again. And after 35 minutes on the phone, after I hung up, my wife, Margie, looked at me. She's like, man, that guy sounds legit. And I thought the exact same thing after 10 minutes into the conversation. So we met up, had a few dinners, had a few coffees, and we've been friends ever since, man. So I definitely appreciate you for uh, reaching out and thank you for your friendship. Absolutely, man. Vice versa as well, because, uh, I mean, I've I've come to know you and to know Margie, and you guys are just great. I've met your parents. Yeah. I actually was able to go to the temple with you and... Yeah. and enjoy that experience and for me that's what it's all about it's all about getting out there and, and connecting with new people positive minded people people that are going place in life people that have that attitude about you know wanting to reach out to others and, and cross all these different lines and and put aside like stereotypes or you know feelings that you might have about somebody mm-hmm. um oftentimes people look at me and they're just like wow look at this guy you know start grabbing their wallets, locking their doors. <laughs> but uh you take 5 minutes just to to get to know me. Right. And to and to listen to listen to my pitch and you see that I'm much different than what I appear to be. Mm-hmm. It creates what's called a huge paradigm shift to basically say, "Wow, I'm so wrong for casting judgment on so many people and stereotyping people and 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 allowing your irrational mind to paint the picture of somebody just because of how they look or where they come from or where they've been. Right. So a lot of the work that I do is, is geared towards shifting paradigms for a better world. And that's the motto that I live by because here we are, we're two totally different people from two totally different worlds, but yet we're like best friends. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, I go to the ends of the earth for you, and you would do the same for me. Absolutely. It took me to get my nose surgery. Yeah. That was an experience. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's just, who would have ever thought that somebody like, you know, myself, you know, like we would be sitting here and that we would be friends from two totally different worlds. Yeah. But yet it shows just how possible it is for all of us to actually find some common elements. Yeah that we both agree on some things that, that can keep the conversation going and moving because me and you, when we talk, 
it's never a dull moment. It's right. never we're just like sitting back, like, oh, okay, what do I say now? What do I do now? I mean, we could we could go anywhere together and have and have a blast. Yeah, have a ball. I agree. Yeah, I mean, we were at the temple together, man. <laughs> I had the time of my life. I blasted that all over my social media. Yeah. That's you know, awesome, here man. I am. This is awesome. Man. I got to take pictures of this. I got yeah. to take this experience in. Right. And it would be the same for you. Like if I was to take you over to the side of town that, that I commonly frequent, mm-hmm. come to a barbecue and, and you'd probably have the time of your life. Absolutely. And it's right. just, and that's, that's really what it's all about. It's yeah. all about living life and enjoying it with others. Yeah. And to not basically get so caught up in, in these images or these, these identities Right. That we all cling to that basically keeps us separate. Yeah. Speaking of paradigm shift, you have authored two books and you actually are working at Marietti's, right? What do you do at Marietti's? So I work in the 21C Museum Hotel, okay. Marietti's Kitchen and Lounge. It's the restaurant that's actually inside of the hotel itself. It's, it's a bar, it's a lounge, it's a restaurant. It's what's called casual to formal dining. American cuisine inspired different, you know, like there could be Mexican food that's American inspired cuisine, French, Italian. And what really happened for me is that I started out in this place as a steward, a dishwasher, very bottom of the totem pole, all the way down the very bottom in a dish pit. And I, I just worked, I worked my butt off in there, man. I, I, I came in there with a positive attitude every day with a go get them attitude. And they gave me a shot at, yeah. at culinary, at the culinarian position. I told them I want to go to culinary school and I've been, I've been in the kitchen pretty much my whole life. Yeah. I mean, I was the one that had to cook for myself because both my parents worked all the time and, and my sister's weren't really the best of cooks themselves. So I had to learn how to prepare my own meals. I started learning a lot of different ways of cooking through my mother, through my grandmother. And I've just always had an interest for the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I felt that, you know, why not do it professionally? Why not just go that route? Because I ain't going to be a dishwasher forever. And... To quote uh, Al Pacino and Scarface, you know, I didn't come to Oklahoma City to be a dishwasher, man. <laughs> you know, I ended up becoming a dishwasher, but I moved. I took that mindset and moved forward. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is not where I'm going to be stuck, idle, at the bottom. I'm going to push forward, mm-hmm. and I'm going to see how far I can get. Yeah. <clears throat> and that attitude really carried me to the next level in there. And I became uh, the pizza I was on the pizza line and I made pizzas for this place and and I still I still hold it like hands down saying that I made the best pizzas in the city. Yeah. There yeah. was never a moment that I had somebody complaining about one of the pizzas that I made. Yeah. I always got, you know, excellent feedback every single day. Yeah. That I was in there. People coming up to me saying, man, that pizza was awesome. That's the best pizza I ever had. And it pushed me to, to go further. Mm-hmm. Regardless of, you know, there was a lot of negative opinions about me from others that worked around me. And there was, 
it was kind of like I had to just basically fend for myself and push forward and, and overcome a lot of these obstacles that were before me and seize control of my destiny and just basically say, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to learn this. Yeah. And eventually, there was a shift in, in the operation of the restaurant itself, and they eliminated the pizza line altogether, and they created what was called the, the hearth line. Mm-hmm. And I worked there for a while, and that was just various different like desserts, uh, different um, hors d'oeuvre type dishes. And finally, they merged that station with the Garmage station. Garmage is like it's called, you know, it's a French word for, you know, guardian of the pantry. Mm-hmm. And Garmage is always dealing with cold, the, the, the hors d'oeuvre part of your meal. Okay. So the Garmage or the, the pantry chef, as you're called, deals with the, the, the salads, the, like I said, the hors d'oeuvres, different kinds of charcuterie boards making all kinds of different vinaigrettes, different dressings, different kinds of doughs for little, let's say, like a hummus dish, you would make a certain kind of bread for it, or mm-hmm. we'd even make chips. You can make uh, um, onion rings yeah, and, and put them over like different stuffed jalapenos or, or roasted peach dishes and... The Garmage line handles all of that. And I was there for over a year until finally they approached me and said, Hey, man, how would you like to take a shot at being a saute cook for lunch? It's uh, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Nice. And you get your weekends off. Yeah. I'm like, Hell yeah, man. I jumped <laughs> right on that. And that's what I'm doing now. Okay. Man, I love and, that. Yeah, I'm doing. Doing it, doing it the way it's supposed to be done. Yeah. Because there was a lot of like professionalism lacking in this position. Mm-hmm. And to put somebody that had a strong work ethic, you know, I'm, I'm considered to be somebody that has a very strong work ethic, yeah. that I'm dependable, that regardless of what you may think of me or, or what mood I might be in, they know I'm always going to get the job done. <clears throat> I'm going to work hard. I'm going to push forward. And I'm always striving for improvement. And I'm always objective mm-hmm. with the feedback that I'm getting. Whether I like it or not, yeah. I take it in. And I allow myself to do what's called an RSA, to rational self, um, called a rational uh, self-analysis of my thinking anytime I get into my mindset. Because the food service industry and the service industry in general is a very stressful, high-stress environment. Yeah. It's like, hurry, 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 hurry. People are all in a bad mood. You're dealing with guests that are in a bad mood. You're dealing with guests that are in a good mood. But for the most part, you got people that come in there and they're like, oh, my food's too cold or my food's too hot or or this doesn't taste right or this is not what I ordered. This ain't what I wanted. I told you no feta. I told you this, that, that. And And it's just constantly going like that. And it's always rush, 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 rush. And sometimes you can't rush something. You know, you can't rush a piece of a fish, like a, a mahi, that's from raw, mm-hmm. or or um, like a, a a flounder or something, and say, I want this raw fish and I want it in two minutes. Yeah. I mean, it's not McDonald's. Right. It's going to take some time. Yeah. You can't rush these things because then you're going to send out a raw product to someone. Yeah. 
Right. Same thing with chicken. Same thing with you come in there and you want a well done burger. It's going to take about 12 minutes. Yeah. That kind of thing. But you have to deal with that. People are like, hurry, hurry, hurry. Yeah. And it's stressful. And it's weighing on people. How do you handle the stress? Well, I mean, I just, I just use my tools. Everything that I've learned and stuff that we'll be talking about as the show progresses is there's a lot of tools that I learned through cognitive thinking. Mm-hmm. And I use them every single day, use them all day long. And without these tools, I would basically just fall apart. Yeah. I, w- I, would, I would succumb to all the pressure and, and it would just be a much different outcome. I would probably be not working there anymore. I would have conflict with others. <laughs> and I use these tools to bring myself back to a rational state of mind, a calm state of mind. Yeah. Coping with the stress is really what gives one the advantage, the ability to utilize a strong sense of emotional intelligence yeah. to take you to that level. Emotional intelligence. I, I like that. I, I've read a, quite a bit about the emotional intelligence, emotional quotient. So we'll dive more into that a little bit later. So it sounds like you take pride in your job and you are very prideful in the product that you serve. Start from a dishwasher, went to the pizza line and to the hors d'oeuvres and now you're a saute in the saute line, which is awesome. And dude, my wife and I love that place, number one. And every time we go in there, the food's always good. So I, you won't get any complaints from us. And even if the food isn't as what we think, who knows who's what? Who's to say that? Oh well, this is what we thought it was. I mean, we don't know. This is the first time we ordered this, so how are we going to be like? Oh, it's not what we thought, right? So with that being said, man, uh, what are some maybe a, a defining moment or two that you've gone through in your life that got you to where you are today? Well. In order to actually identify that, because there's so many defining moments in all of our lives. Right. I believe that we will always be faced with a new defining moment as our life progresses, as we continue to engage in the experience Mm -hmm. that is life itself. And for me, you would have to go all the way back in time to my upbringing um, I was born and raised in Bellflower, California, in southeast Los Angeles. Uh, grew up in North Orange County, southeast L.A. My main stomping grounds were the city of Buena Park, La Mirada, and Norwalk. And I just kind of like ran in those little three tri-cities throughout my um, childhood and then into my adult years. <clears throat> I uh, never really did very well in school. I had what they called at the time was a learning disability and I couldn't pay attention or I couldn't focus. I just didn't understand academics at all. I didn't understand the, the, the basic math and, and English and scored very low on every test was held back a grade. And back in those times, because, you know, I'm going to be 45 next month mm-hmm. And in, and in those days, it was much different than it is today, especially in the world of education. Uh, you had a, a vice principal that could still um, spank you. Yeah. And right. these are things that you don't have anymore. And we had this one principal, his name was Mr. Cottrell, and he had this brutal switch that he used to let us have it with whenever we <laughs> messed up. I had my first grade teacher was Miss Vineyard. 
And when all the kids were learning how to spell their own last names, their first names and their last names, my last name is Rutherford. So as a first grader, she put me up front of the class. I told her I can't do that. And she goes, yeah, get up there. Yeah. So I couldn't spell my last name and all the kids laughed at me. And the teacher said, you know, hey, everyone, you know, look at Jason. Make sure you study and study hard because you could end up retarded like him. Wow. And this was a word, you know, retarded Mm -hmm. is a word that's not correct in any way, shape or form today. And it's it's very derogatory. You know what I mean? Where mm-hmm. people will be like, oh, if you were to say it today. But back then it was readily used all the time. Right. A lot right. of people used it. They even used it as like a definition mm-hmm. for people that had, you know, various different challenges. Yes. And they put me in all these special classes. And the defining moment in as far as like on the negative level for me was just like, you know, F school, F the system. You know, everybody's a bully. Everybody... Pro, you know, gets off on treating others bad because yeah. it's like a pecking order in life. It's like you get stepped on by somebody else, so you're going to step on the next person. That person's going to step on somebody and so forth down the line. And there was a time where I think I was in about the second or third grade that I just had enough. So I started fighting back against the bullies. And my parents never really had a lot of money. We were renters in a low-income condominium complex called the Highland Greens but you had people that lived there that owned the property owned various properties Mm -hmm. and they always thought they were high and mighty and better than the rest but there was a lot of young families a lot of kids there was a lot of bullying a lot of fighting and one day I just had enough and I shot some kid in the face with a BB gun and since that time I was always branded as like the outcast the juvenile delinquent the incorrigible kid that was just like a lot of the parents didn't like their kids hanging around with me. Mm-hmm. So I kind of got stuck into this rebellion thing and started wearing it as a badge of honor and started delving deeper and deeper into negative self-destruction and ditching school and getting kicked out of schools for fighting and all these things. Um, what really kind of exasperated all of the negativity in our home was my father was a dock worker in the freight yards of East Los Angeles, city of Vernon. My mom worked at a jack-in-the-box, mm-hmm. and this is how we made ends meet. We never had all the designer clothes and nice stuff that a lot of the other kids had. Yeah. And, like, I didn't have, like, nice bikes. You know, these kids would be riding around in BMX and GT bikes, and I had a, I had a freaking mongoose, yeah. you know. Um, mongoose was pretty popular, though, back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> You know, um, my my grandfather actually gave me the mongoose, and then some bigger kid stole it from me. So I was pretty bummed out about it for a long time. And then my other grandma decided, well, I'm going to buy him a bike for his birthday. So they bought me a Huffy. And Huffy ain't cool. <laughs> you know, Huffy's not cool. And I was embarrassed to ride this bike because it was everyday abuse, you know, with the Huffy. So I, I would pop the tires and tell them I got a flat and you know, somebody go buy me a, a, a new tube and, yeah. all right, your bike's good. And I'm just like, oh, I'm not going to ride that thing anymore, you yeah. know? And I think for a poor kid like myself to see, 
to be living so close to the haves and the have-nots that it, it built this desire to want to get those things. But how do you get those things if your parents don't have any money and you're too young to work a job? So you start you know, looking for other ways to acquire things that you want. And you see, you got the guys, you got the, you got the gang members, you got the drug dealers, you got the people that are stealing all around you. Yeah. And you're just like, how do they get it? Yeah. And when you approach them and ask them, how do you get these things? You're just like, they're just like, well, you got to get your hustle on. You got to go out there and you got to steal. You got to take. You got you to you slang that dope. You got to do all these things. And, and you got to be that guy. You got to be strong and you got to be aggressive and you got to not let nobody get over on you. So I started doing that. I started engaging in that behavior. Um, a lot of these kids would, would use me to break into homes, like crawl up into tight little windows because I was smaller. Mm-hmm. Run through the house, go down, open the door, let them in, take me to stores to go stealing. I started shoplifting from stores as early as like eight, nine years old. Yeah. But my father, like, when he, when he was working in this, in this freight yard, he suffered a horrible accident when I was about 10 years old. And he was laid up for a long time, and he popped a lot of Xanax and drank a lot of whiskey, and he became very mentally and verbally abusive at home. So with this already resentful, rebellious nature that was growing inside of me just from my inability to focus and, and understand just simple schoolwork, academics, and I didn't understand why. I, I didn't know why I couldn't be normal and, and, and learn this stuff. Along with the neighborhood bullies, the bad influences, you know, yeah, come on, take this kid and push him into the window and open the door. Let's take him down to the store and let's have him run around and steal all the candy. With all of that combined with what was going on in the home was just basically creating the fire was fueling the fire that was already grown inside of me, this anger, this resentment, this rebellion, lashing out at the world. Right. And I started to say, to, to basically feel that I was defined by all of these circumstances and these environmental factors. And this is what my life was going to be about, and my life wasn't worth nothing anyways. So I might as well just go hard all the way through and basically see where it leads me when you say go hard what do you mean go hard basically just just all in like going full force full throttle into this destructive life started to get into the gangs started to get into the drugs i started out by it was never really much of a like a heavy drug user younger but i sold marijuana at the school started out with five bucks went to some burnout we call them I remember his name was Alan. He was an older guy. He lived at home. Um, he used to sell a lot of weed. So I went and bought a nickel bag of, of, of bud, marijuana, mm. rolled it up into a couple of joints, sold both joints for $5 a piece, went back to the school, made 10 bucks, went back, bought a dime, rolled those up into four joints, went back, sold the four joints, made 20 bucks, went and bought 20 bucks worth of weed and so on, so on and so forth. Yeah. Until next thing you know, I had a big old giant sack of marijuana and I was the man. Right. As early as the seventh grade, eighth grade, I was doing this. So that was where I was at. I was automatically sold on that lifestyle, and there was no real turning back from it. It's, it's, it was just like, it, it just captivated me. Mm-hmm. 
on so many levels and it, and it was so alluring and appealing that there was nothing else I wanted to do. I mean, I wanted to be a fireman. I wanted to go to West Point, be in the military. All those things just kind of like yeah. melted and faded away to I wanted to be like Al Capone. I wanted to be like John Gotti. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be like NWA. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be <laughs> all these things together. Right. So this is what I became. And I got kicked out of so many schools that I had to go to a high school that was far away from where I lived. Yeah. And I started to feel that I was defined by this mentality, this this you know, I'm I'm a bad I'm a bad man and carrying a switchblade and a zippo lighter, sparking up cigarettes and <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So this started back in first grade when your teacher put you on the whiteboard, called you a retard. Obviously, that was back in the day. And then your dad verbally, mentally abusive to you because he suffered that accident. So this all snowballing from first to ninth grade. You're rolling joints, selling them, dime bag, dime sack, nickel bag. I sound like I know what I'm talking about. I don't because I'm just listening to you. Right. However, listening to that, you you talked about stealing cars and and being in gangs. What? How did you get away, or did you get away with stealing cars? And what kind of gangs were you in? Okay, so, um, back in like 1988, the gang problem was pretty much at its height. In California and Southern California, all over California for that matter. Um, in the beginning, I was just kind of like, I just took on this gangster persona, or you call it gangster, you know? You're G. You're a G. And I wear, like, I wear, like, all black with Adidas, straight, you know, fresh size. 42 or 45 Levi 501s with the red stitch because back then there was a lot of red stitch Levi 501s uh Raider Raider caps and I was just like you could tell that I was I was in that that gangster hoodlum thug mentality Mm -hmm. but from what gang because I didn't officially belong to a gang so I just kind of like because I sold weed. So I, I kind of was able to maneuver around through all of all of them. But my weed career kind of tanked when the guy that I was buying it from, that guy, is, I told you his name was Alan, mm-hmm. they found him dead in a motel. So that kind of just killed that career. And I ended up spending out all the money through the summer of when I was 14, parties, yeah, going to place we used to go through, go to all the time was called Knott's Berry Farm and there was a, a dance club in there called Studio K and that's where all the latest hits were everybody's busting the latest moves the Running Man the yeah. Roger Rabbit <laughs> Robot and, you know and all that stuff so we used to go in there and, and, and the, cr- the crew that I ran around with was kind of like a mixed bag of all these different guys I had I had three friends that were Crips and they're from a gang called Payback Crip and I had I had another homie named Ruben, and and he was a he was a what we call an essay. He was a, a cholo from a from a gang mm-hmm. called uh, um, Ward Street, Vadio Ward Street in La Habra. Uh, I had a, I had another friend, um, we, you know, his name was Roger. We called him Ro, 
and he was from another gang called uh, Compton Vario Saluno. And then we had another homie we kicked it back with, uh, Mondo, and he was from uh, Coyotes. So it was just kind of like back then it wasn't really, like it was racial in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways it wasn't. Mm -hmm. It was just, it depended on like where you were at. If you had, if you, if you were at war with a specific gang or not. So if any of these guys had any kind of beef with anybody, I was right there with them, backing them up. And I never got jumped into either any of these gangs because I kind of felt like that I was so rebellious in entirety that I couldn't see myself joining a gang and being forced to follow somebody else's set of rules. Yeah. I enjoyed my freedom to maneuver around through all of them. And that's, that's pretty much how I ran around. And like I used to run away from home a lot. And my mm-hmm. parents would find me. I'd come back. But what, what was coming next, like the biggest moment of my life, the biggest traumatic event in my life happened when I was 14. What happened when you were 14? Well, I did school. A friend of mine, like I told you, my buddy Ruben, he was going to get in a fight with a guy that Ruben was stealing his girlfriend from him. Turned into a big old ordeal in front of a 7-Eleven during lunchtime. And why him and Ruben are sitting there arguing, you know, what's up, what's up, what's up, man, what's up, what's up, what are you going to do? Yeah. I just punched this guy and knocked him out. You know, my buddy Ruben's like, what are you doing, man? I had him, I had him, homie, I had him. Yeah. And I'm just like... All I seen you doing was talking. So I punched him. <laughs> My bad, you know. And, and and we were on our way back, and a truancy officer picked up Ruben and took him away. We don't know why. I was with another kid named Rob. He was a chubby little white dude with braces, mm-hmm. but his, <laughs> he had the personality of of a man who was ten feet tall, taller than the Jolly Green Giant. Yeah. And uh, he was this very comical character. So me and him got on a bus. And ditched school and went back to my house, which was far away. Like I said, there was no school that wanted to take me. I was getting kicked out of all of them for everything. So we go back to my house. I'm in the I'm in the house, you know, using the restroom, lifting a pack of cigarettes out of my mom's carton. This this dummy steals a a twelve or a six pack of beer out of the back of some guy's car when he's taking his groceries in the house in my alley. Hmm. So. We ended up running off, and we ran to some some place that I called the ditch, you know, drinking the beers and stuff. And you know, make a long story short, we ended up at some girl's house. I came home. My uh, mom was freaking out at me. My sisters were yelling at me because I had ditched school, saying that your dad's coming home and he wants to talk to you. And uh, the guy across the street called the cops, said that you stole something out of his garage, and I didn't steal anything. Mm-hmm. But I felt like I'm getting blamed once again. Like, I feel like I was getting blamed for everything that went wrong at, at home and in the neighborhood. That I got sick of it, so I ran. I jumped out the window and I ran away. And I stayed gone for several days, and I was out in the streets, like, staying at one friend's house to the next, um, shoplifting out of various different stores. I found these two kids that were, like, squatter kids that had been out in the streets for a long time, and they were addicted to crack. So and you could just tell that they were... Like, my clothes were clean, and I was just fresh on the streets. But they had been out there for a long time. So I used to use them as decoys to go into, like, Kmart, to go into the mall. Yeah. 
just draw the attention to you and I'll rob the place blind. Cologne bottles, Dracar, Polo, (laughs) Obsession, you know, all these different stuffing them down my pants. And I did this for a little while and was running around the streets. And finally, it was like I was getting so lonesome from not having my girlfriend at the time. I had this girlfriend, her name was Jackie Carrasco, and she was like the light of my life. Mm-hmm. There was like nothing better than Jackie in my eyes. So I tried to call my house, which was a mistake, because I'd been out in the streets for about a week at this time. Yeah. And I called my house, and my sister said, oh, yeah, you know, Jackie said she wants you to meet her at the mall. So I went to the mall, and my dad set me up. So he's he's taking me home, and he's running through the typical third degree that I was had grown accustomed to, but I was so sick and tired of. And he's like, you're going to do this. You're going to do that. You're going to go to school. You're going to be grounded forever. And I said, what makes you think you can keep me here? You can't keep me here. I don't want to be here and I'll, I'll, I'll get out of here any way I can. So he had my uncles driving and he said, Hey, Ray, pull over and let this little mother effer out, let him out. Or, you know, just take him back to where we found him at the mall. I'm done with him. So he let me out. I thought I was free. I'm like, wow, 14 years old, I got no responsibilities, man. Yeah. The world is mine. And I could do whatever I want, go wherever I want. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go back to my boy Danny's house. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chill there for a while and figure out what my next move is going to be. Yeah. So I walked all the way back to Danny's house and realized fast that because he was at the mall with me when I got set up by my dad, he was talking about it, and his mom overheard it, like, wait a minute, this kid was a runaway, and you had him in our house all this time? He's never allowed over here again. Mm. This all happened as I was walking to his house. Yeah. And I'm like, look, man, I'm free. My dad just dropped me off on the street. He said, man, you got to go. My mom don't want you here. So the squat where, I was, where those kids that, that I knew were staying at, those kids had, you know, long disappeared. And like I said, my next book that I got coming out, The Laughing Boy, you'll hear all about how that happened. But they were gone. So I'm like, well, I can go to their squat. I go to the squat. It just so happens the owner was in there restoring the house because the house was thrashed. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't stay there. So I went to this other place that I had somebody introduced me to some people. Couldn't stay there. So at one point in time when I was stealing out of the Kmart, there was a loss prevention guy there and he was, he met us in the back cause he, I guess he had, he knew the other kids, Candy and Tommy. So he's like, I already know the whole drill that they do. They come back here and unload everything. <clears throat> so he knew that they were going to be back there and he knew that I was with them. He knew the whole thing. He's like, let me help you. Let me help you get off the streets. Here's my phone number. Call me anytime. Hey, Tommy, you know, you could still call me anytime too. I'll help you. So I just thought this guy was some kind of like missionary type of boys town, Father Flanagan figure that was trying to help people. Um, Never once thought about calling him. But when I was sitting in a park and the rain was pouring and I crawled underneath the bench to get out of the rain and the bench was a wooden bench where all the rain was dripping down through the cracks on me and I'm sitting there getting soaking wet. I was digging into my wallet. I found that phone number and I called that man. Uh, So um, 
didn't know what to expect. I'm thinking, okay, well, how could this man help me? Why does he want to help me? He was so adamant about me trusting him. Mm-hmm. Trust me, just trust me, trust me. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make sure that you're fine, that everything is, is that you have a safe place to stay. You got clean clothes and all that stuff. So he took me to this house and there was two other men there and, you know, they were drinking beer and they had a, they had a, a air hockey table and everything was seemed cool. And I had on fresh clothes, was able to take a shower and play an air hockey with this one guy. And this other guy's like, here, you know, have a joint, man, on a wine. It's a party. You know, I loved weed. Yeah. So I'm smoking it. Next thing you know, I started to feel different about this weed. There was something wrong with the weed. And from the get-go, I was hungry because I'd, I'd been out there for over a week when yeah. my dad found me. I was hungry. I was fatigued. I had nowhere to go. I'd been walking all over the city. So when this guy picked me up to take me to this place, I didn't even pay attention to where I was going or nothing. I mean, my mind was just blank. So by the time I got there, I was I was basically trapped. And I had started to feel weird. And these guys were acting strange. And before I knew it, I couldn't leave. And I remember because somebody hit me over the head that I woke up and there was a woman looking at me, talking about how you busted his lip, he's useless, just, you know, chop him and dump him type of a thing. And they're like, no, no, no. The guy that lured me in there, John was his name, was, you know, kind of like massaging his shoulders, like, let me keep this one, let me, you know, this and that. And she was just like, okay. And the next thing you know, I felt something hot going through my arm and I went out. They were shooting me up with something, I don't know what. Woke up in a closet, or I didn't know what it was at first. It was dark in there, and I was, like, chained to a post. And I started beating on everything, you know, help, let me out of here, joke's over. And this one guy came in, he hit me with a club, told me to shut up. Um, kept me in there for so long, I was freezing, I was in my underwear. I had to urinate inside of this closet because I had to go to the bathroom so bad. Um, right after that, this guy came to let me out of the closet to take me to the bathroom. And he noticed that I had urinated in there. So he punched me in the stomach, threw me back in there, and, you know, he pulled out, pulled his pants down, and he started urinating on me. Said that now you could sit and you could sit in that as well. Slammed the door, locked it. Sat in there and, you know, freezing cold. There was urine everywhere. It stunk. And uh, finally the other guys pulled me out, and the first guy told me that, this is what we do, and I'm going to show you what we do, and you're going to play ball, basically, or you're going to die. Mm-hmm. So they took me back into a room, and they brought some other boy in who was younger than me and basically said that you're going to have sex with him, and we're going to film it. And I'm just like, I'm, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do all that. you know. And they assaulted me and then basically said, okay, well, what you're about ready, what we're going to show you is going to basically uh, change your mind. So they held this kid down and they sexually abused him. They sodomized him and forced him to perform oral copulation on him and did all these things while this other guy was basically holding my head and just like, open your eyes and watch, watch, or I'll tear your eyeballs out and make you watch. So I had to watch this. And then they told me, you know, they threw me down and tried to, you know, basically pull off my pants. And they're saying, 
if I, the minute I penetrate you, it's over. You're no longer have the opportunity to be the wolf. You're now, you're now the prey and we'll dispose of you. I'll sell you to some rich Arab in Saudi Arabia or the cartel in Colombia where they'll use you as target practice. You'll never be seen again. You'll be dead, but you're going you're gonna to your, you're gonna lose your manhood right now before that happens. So either you could do it, do it to him or we're going to do it to you. So, I mean, 14 years old, I was scared shitless, and I did it to him. I mean, I had to have sex with this kid, and I hated every minute of it, and I hated myself after it. And I was so ashamed of myself that I didn't even know how to talk to this kid. We were both chained at the same pole in this room, freezing, barely being fed. This went on for days, and the abuse went on. And finally, I was trying to tell this guy, like, you know, I'll do whatever you want. Just keep this other guy, some guy named Alexander, that would constantly come in there and verbally abuse us, mentally abuse us, scare us, throw stuff at us, drug us, drug our food. If you just keep him off of us. And, and it was cool for a minute. He said, okay. And for a minute there, this guy didn't even really bother us. But then it came later that the guy they originally lured me in there, John, told me, he goes, you're sold, basically. There's somebody that really has got to have you. So, and I thought, I'm like, I thought that wasn't going to happen to me. I thought you said that if I do all this, that we would be fine, we'd be safe. And he's just like, well, I lied, basically. So I assaulted him. And that basically broke any agreement. So the other guy, Alexander, was free to come in there and do whatever it was he was going to do. And he came in and he had a syringe full of something. He stabbed me with it. And when the effects were starting to take root of me, I, I hit the ground and he was ripping my, trying to rip my sweatpants off. And he was going at me. And the other kid that was with me, his boy, his name was Nathan, was 12 years old, jumped up and jumped on him to save me. And when he did that, I was able to try to fight him. And finally, the guy kicked me in the face. And I kind of was like dazed for a second. I was vomiting. I had urinated myself. <clears throat> and um, he picked up that kid, Nathan, and dropped him on his head. And when I was laying there, he, he just he kind of took his focus off me and directed it all towards this kid. Because this kid, he, I think he stuck his finger in his eye and messed up his eye or something, scratched his face. So he, he pulled the kid's underwear off and, and viciously, brutally raped him in front of me. And all I could do was lay there and look at this kid whose eyes were fluttering because he landed on his head, so he obviously had a concussion. His neck might have even been broken, I don't know. <clears throat> but I just held his hand, and we held hands, and I just I passed out. And the way they got this kid was different than how they got me. Because me and him, we did a lot of talking. We, was, we were in there for two weeks together. Mm-hmm. And he said that he was a 12-year-old kid. He grew up in an in a upper-middle-class neighborhood. He was walking home from school. Some woman pulled up on him, regular, everyday, average, everyday white lady, nice car and everything, pulled up on him and called his name out and said, Hey, Nathan. You know, your mom, and I think he said his name, his mom's name was Cheryl or something. I, I don't remember the name. Your mom, I work with your mom, Cheryl. 
and your father's in the hospital. So I, I'm coming to pick you up because she's there. I got to take you to the hospital to see your dad. And he, he didn't think nothing of it. He got in the car and they drove off. And he learned that the minute they pulled up into a residential neighborhood, went to a garage that he wasn't getting taken to the hospital. And that's when those other two men came out, snatched him up, tied him up and brought him in the house. And it was very horrifying to hear that, that how did this lady know him? How did she know his name? How did she know his mother's name? Yeah. Obviously, these people were professionals and they did their homework. They knew how to get kids. And that's how they lured him in there. And to watch the things that they were doing to him and what they made me and him do <clears throat> was just something that I don't think many people could ever overcome in their life. And when I woke up after, you know, Alexander brutally raped him, the kid was dead. I mean, he was obviously, he was blue, he was turning green. I started banging on the walls and kicking everything. And um, there was another guy named Phil came in and he's just like, well, help me take him to the bathroom. And I'm like, well, what are we going to do? We got to take him to a hospital. We, we got to help him. He's like, he goes, the kid's dead, stupid. Yeah. Now help me pick him up. I hurt my arm at the gym. Mm -hmm. So he uncuffed my ankle, but I couldn't really do anything. I was still kind of wobbly and, and woozy and head rushing. And he just said, man, just sit down, sit down. I got this. And he drug, basically drug Nathan out by his leg out through the hall. And for a second there, I'm like, I'm free. I've got no choice but to try to run to get out of there. I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know who's out in the living room. I don't know who else is in the house but I have to try. And I took off out of that room and it was almost like slow motion, like a dream. Like I couldn't walk or run. And I walked through the living room and the door was wide open, the front door. So I ran through the door, ran down the streets and got out of there. And was able to go somewhere to where I thought I was going to be able to call my father. But I couldn't remember the phone number. At that moment, like I was just so blanked out, malnutrition, dehydrated, fatigued. I had no shoes on. Mm -hmm. I must have ran for a couple of miles with no shoes, with sweatpants, holding my sweatpants up with, with a dirty shirt on and vomit all over, dried up vomit and urine, you know, just holding up my sweatpants with no, with no shoes on, just running down the street while everybody's just driving past, just not paying any attention, nobody stopping to say, hey, you know, isn't this odd looking that some kid's running? Obviously horrified, yeah. you know, look of just blank terror on his face and people just driving by, nobody saying nothing, nobody stopping, nobody, cops, everybody. Wow. Even a crossing guard ran through the crossing guard, didn't say anything. I ran. I mean, I must have ran for miles, I felt like, until mm -hmm. I finally got to the place where I thought I'd be able to call my dad. And I couldn't call because I didn't remember the number. But the guy that was in this house called somebody. And I heard him on the phone, and I started to get this panic all over again. Oh, he's calling them. They're going to come and get me. Right. So I ran out of this house. And... um I was running from one block to the next when a car pulled up on me and it was my father. And he took me to the hospital. They pumped my stomach. 
They knew that I had suffered some kind of abuse, but I was too ashamed to tell, to say what happened. I finally told my dad what happened, and he just freaked out and cried and blamed himself for letting me get out of the car. <clears throat> he started to think, like, he should have done something more to help me. He should have been more firm and, and not given in. He, he just blamed himself, and it wasn't his fault, you know. He took me to the police station and tried to make a report, and they're like, well, what's the address? I don't know what the address is. Well, where's the house? What street is it on? I don't know. Okay, um, what are these, what are their last names? What is this? They weren't really interested, it seemed, because of the reputation I had as a juvenile delinquent. Mm -hmm. The cop that was taking the report wasn't even looking at me. He didn't look at me the whole time until I told him that they fought, they, they basically, they made me have sex with this boy, and he just kind of looked up at me for a second, and then went back down, and he said, okay, so you assaulted this boy, what happened there? I'm like, no, 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 I didn't assault anybody. They, you know, he's like, well, they told you to, they, I said, they told me, they didn't tell me to assault the boy, they made me assault, or, mm -hmm. they, you know what, I didn't even assault him. I'm like, now you're putting words in my mouth. He's like, well, this, I'm just going off of what you said, and and then, you know, he's like, why didn't you call 911? Why didn't you run? You know, how did you use the bathroom if you were chained up? And my dad was finally just losing his patience with him. And a detective came out and said, look, you know, I know you want to help your son and all, but your son needs some real help mm -hmm. because he doesn't have any specifics. He's obviously playing you. So my dad's like, well, I'll go get the address myself. And they're like, you're free to do that. It's your prerogative. So... We left the police station. We called the, I told my, my dad goes, you said this guy worked at Kmart, right? So that was the first step they took. He got in the yellow pages, called the Kmart, and asked to, asked to find this guy. This guy, they had no idea who he was, what his name was. There's like, there's no guy with that name working here. So it was obviously an alias name he was using. Mm -hmm. um, we drove around for hours in the neighborhood that I thought that the house was at. Couldn't find the house didn't know where the house was. Finally, we went to the gas station. And when my dad was pumping gas, just a stroke of luck, that guy, Alexander, pulled in to get gas. Wow. And I freaked out. I immediately dropped and sunk under the dash of the car and was like crawling under the steering wheel. And I was calling out my dad while he's out pumping gas. And he came over the car. He's like, what, what, what? I go, that's him. That's him right there, right in front of us. That's him. And my dad... Right at first, he was grabbing his pistol. He was going to go over there and shoot the guy. Took the license plate number down. And at first, he contemplated, like, let's go back to the police station. And he's just like, nah, we're not going to do that. Basically, F them. They're not going to help us. Mm. We're going to deal with this. We're going to call your grandpa. So we called my grandfather, and my dad told my grandfather everything. And I told my grandfather everything. It was just three generations of Rutherford men. My dad, me, my father, and my grandfather sitting at a table at a pizza parlor plotting how we were going to murder all of these people. And my grandfather, at first, he got the first guy, the Alexander, the most abusive one. They took him somewhere and they tortured him for several hours until they finally killed him. And to them, they thought that this is what would help me. Like, come to terms with it and move on. I was never allowed to talk about it ever again. <clears throat> nobody was ever allowed to hear about it. I couldn't tell my mom, my sisters, nobody. 
from that moment on, from the minute it was done, it was done and it was never to be talked about. Ever. As long as they were alive, at least. Mm-hmm. So, I went for months afterwards. Three months later, my grandfather died. But before he died, you know, I started telling him that I felt a lot of animosity towards grown men, specifically, you know, gay men that, that target young boys. And I wanted to find all of them in the world and kill all of them mm-hmm. and tell my grandfather this. And, he's, and I go, I'm going to find that guy, John, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill him. And he's like, you're too late because I already got him. And I'm like, he told me the whole story. We're sitting at a diner. It was like five o'clock in the morning. My grandfather was an early riser. He was a military man his whole yeah. life. Yeah. And <clears throat> he had told me one time that he was prepared to do all this because when he was in Korea, there was, there was a lot of abuse going on in Korea. He said that they found there was a U.S. soldier, infantryman that was in some Korean village and he was, he was raping a girl that was probably about seven or eight years old. So they took this guy and basically cut his testicles off and laid him out under the tracks of their tank and just ran him over till he was nothing. They said, well, he fell, fell underneath the tank. They reported to that, but my grandfather was like, you know, we, we draped his testicles over the barrel of the, of the gun, of the 60 cal machine gun, and it stayed there like, like dice on a mm. rear view mirror the whole time. And he's like, those kind of people are sick in the world. He liberated a, a concentration camp in World War II, and he saw like piles of bodies of Jewish and Polish children just piled on top of each other. And it was very personal for him to hear all this, especially when it was so close to home and it was his grandson. Yeah. He's just like, there's no way we're going to the cops. We're going to deal with these people ourselves. So when they got the first one, I'm like, this ain't over because there's others out there. And later he got, he got that guy, John. He told me how he did it. Drove him out to like South Central LA and offed him and basically left the keys in his car. John had a really nice car. It was like a, it was like a Firebird or a Camaro back then. And those were what it, what it, what you wanted to have. Mm-hmm. So he left him and he left him for dead in some South Central LA, a gang infested neighborhood. And the way he told it to me is like, he was approached by some Crips or some Bloods or whatever. They ran up on him like, what you doing here? You white old man. You mm-hmm. know, and he's just like, there's a car back there with the keys in it and everything, you know, never mind the body, it's yours. Got on the bus and <laughs> got wow. out of there. And these guys just basically looked at him and looked over at the car and looked at each other and, hell yeah, it's a free car. Mm-hmm. So whatever happened to that guy or anything like that, he, he did it to where it looked like that guy was down there in the wrong neighborhood and got murdered, got his car taken. Wow. And he planned it all out like that. And then he died three months later. You know, he he had a heart attack and died. So I had to live with all this. And as time went on, this these, this experience like totally affected everything of my life. I had nightmares for, for the longest. I couldn't have normal relationships because I had always wondered. I, I thought, well, am, I, am I gay now or something? Am I gay because of what I did? Or does this make me gay? And... I wasn't, obviously, 
And I had several relationships with, with many different girls. I started actually becoming very promiscuous, being with all these different girls just to like, obviously to prove to myself and to prove to my dad that I'm not gay, you know, mm-hmm. if he ever questioned it or ever wondered it. Like, I'm not gay, dad. Look, I'm, you know, I got all these girlfriends and everything. And I was trying to prove it to myself, but my relationships never lasted. So I don't really have a family. It's so why I've never been married. Um, I started getting heavily into drugs, started getting heavily into gangs. And then I finally became a gang member from the gang I'm from. I'm from a gang called uh, Criminals Norwalk Area or uh, Vario Criminales. It's a Sureño street gang in California. I'm white, but I'm from a, I'm from a Chicano street gang. Yeah. And um, I use that as an instrument of self-destruction. I didn't want to live. There was many times where I'd stuck a shotgun barrel in my mouth and just couldn't pull the trigger, put pistols in my head, played Russian roulette several times and just couldn't kill myself, tried to hang myself, tried to stuff as many pills down my throat as I could to, to, to take my life out. I couldn't do it. I just didn't want to live, and I felt I was dead. I felt that I had died in that room, and I died the minute they made me mount up on top of Nathan and do what I did to him, that I died then, and I was, I've been dead ever since. And ended up going in and out of the, the prison system, California State Prison, till, uh, for years, got stuck in that recidivism trap, that revolving door, and really strung out on heroin. Um, my dad passed away in 2006, so there was nobody left alive that knew what happened. And it was when my dad died in 2006, I talked to a psychologist in the prison system and I told them everything that was going on. And while I was talking to him, he was just like, yeah, well, um, I can prescribe you medication and I can start getting you on this and I can start getting you on that. But I really got to go because I got to go talk to somebody else. And I'm just like, I just need somebody to talk to. And he's just like, well... We don't do that. We treat it. So we'll put you on medication. But I never got put on medication. So I got out of prison when my dad died. I got really strung out on heroin inside the prison system. And I came out. I came out like kicking heroin and stuff and tested dirty in my parole office straight out of prison. But they just basically let it go and let me go back out to the streets. And I kind of ran around, got into trouble from 2007 until about... 2012, I was in California, and I finally moved out to Texas. My dad was long dead. My mom was living in Texas and started running around in Amarillo, city of Amarillo, with all the worst kind of people that you can imagine, doing all the worst kind of stuff that you can imagine. And I got caught up in a, in a situation where a friend of mine had put me in a in a situation I didn't want to be in, he owed some people some money for some drugs that he lost. And I kind of like told them that I'll pay it, but mm-hmm. nothing, a couple of things didn't fall through for me to get the money. So they were threatening my family, threatening to rape my nieces and all that. So I decided to go and drive out to Arkansas to pick up a couple of firearms. And I was going to just, I was going to, you know, go out shooting and kill these guys. From Amarillo, Texas. Yeah. So you were in the state uh, prison system in California. Yeah. For how many years? 
off and on since the early 90s. Since for, the early 90s. You know, almost about 20 years off almost and on. 20 years. You're 44, 45 now. So yeah. almost half your life in the state prison yeah. system in California. You got released. Now you're in Amarillo, Texas. Yeah. And you're about to go deliver some goods to Arkansas. No, I was going to pick up some firearms. Oh, you're going to pick up some firearms. And uh, a couple of things happened along the way where I was in the city of Pampa, Texas. I left my wallet, uh, a a pistol that I had, and some money and everything else back at this house. And I was driving down I-40 through Oklahoma. And I realized it run out of gas after I left the rest stop. Going to Oklahoma, I stopped for a minute to relax, to kind of like, you know, collect my thoughts and figure out like what I was going to do and how I was going to approach this. I kept running scenarios through my head over and over and over again to make sure that it was running, that I was going to be able to get these guys in a location and Mm -hmm. get rid of them, take them out for threatening my family, for everything that they were doing, tripping over $1,200 for some crystal meth. Yeah, and I'm just like it's twelve hundred bucks, man. You're really gonna kill my whole family over that. So <clears throat> I decided to get back on the high on the highway, and I'm driving down I-40, and I pulled into a city called Elk City, Oklahoma, to get mm-hmm. gas. I realized I didn't have my wallet or anything, mm-hmm. so I'm freaking out. I'm tearing my car apart. Like, where's my wallet? Where's my wallet? And it dawned on me, I left it back in Pampa. So it was too far to go back to Pampa from where I was, so I had to keep pushing. I didn't know Oklahoma at all. Yeah. Never been here, never lived here. I didn't know how big the state was. I didn't know how much further I had to drive. I'm thinking, well, I only got to go to Tulsa. I only got to go as far as maybe um, Fort Smith, Arkansas. Yeah. Oklahoma's a small state. should be able to drive right through. Well, it's not a small state. Yeah. It's a very long strip right and just yeah. i kept going and going i passed a city called weatherford passed some other city um finally ended up in el reno i'm like i can't go any further i'm pretty much out of gas so i called my cousin who i was supposed to go see in, in arkansas and, and they were just like well can you meet us in tulsa and i go i can't even get as far as the next city which is yukon yeah because all the signs were saying yukon is the <laughs> next city right i go i can't even get as far as yukon I'm, i don't know how far because I had somebody let me use their cell phone. I said, how far are we from Tulsa? And they said, oh, about three hours, four hours, three hours. I go, God, I go, there's no way. I go, I didn't realize this, this state was this big. <laughs> so she's just like, well, I mean, we can't, we can't go out there. So I, I don't know what to tell you. You're resourceful. You know, do what you got to do. So the first thing I did is after I handed the person back the phone, I said, hey, you wouldn't have to have a couple of extra bucks again now. All right. So I'm standing at this gas station. I'm like, excuse me, uh, ma'am, I ain't got no gas, no. Yeah. Excuse me, sir. Um, and I was wondering if you know. Um, you'll hear later why I, I understand why a lot of um, Oklahomans are like this because there's so many panhandlers in the city. Mm-hmm. So I, I understand. I didn't know that at the time. I'm thinking like, well, God, I thought this is like Southern hospitality. <laughs> Lots of people are supposed to be nice out here. Yeah. I didn't know where I was. Well, you know, Oklahomans they, are really nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were nicely declining <laughs> to give me any money for gas. I mean, they weren't calling me names or anything. It wasn't That's like fair. California, like F off or, you know, get away from me, you bum or something like that. But 
I just finally realized, I said, you know what, this ain't working out. I go, I'm looking around, it's Friday night, it's late, all these banks are closing, but I'm mm-hmm. like, I can hit a bank, walk in there and tell them to give me the money, they have to give me the money. So I'm thinking, well, this bank is closed, this bank is closed. I looked over at the Walmart, I go, I wonder if that bank's open. So I drove over to the Walmart in El Reno, pulled into the parking place, walked in there, saw the bank was open, jotted out a little note real quick, stood in line, walked up to the teller and told him, give me all your hundreds and fifties. No diet packs, nothing stupid. She did. She gave me the money. I walked out of the Walmart, even walked past the door greeter. was like, have a nice day. <laughs> you know, got in my car and didn't know if I was going to make it anywhere. I'm like, I'm completely out of gas. Mm-hmm. My car's like, <laughs> driving down this axis road along I-40. And I managed to make it to the city over and just barely coasted into the gas station. Filled up my tank with gas, went back to Texas. Went back to Texas. Went back to Texas. Didn't go to Tulsa or nope. Fort Smith. Nope. Went the opposite. I didn't want to go any further through Oklahoma. <laughs> I'm thinking, because I didn't have my phone. I didn't have anything. Didn't know where I was. I couldn't look at a GPS or anything to figure out, like, how far, which, which direction is farther. If I go back west towards Texas, is it a shorter distance through Oklahoma than if it was if I was to go east? Oh, I see. So you went back to Texas to get your, like, your cell phone. Yeah, all that things. stuff. Okay. Not only that, but just... I felt that if I kept driving further, like I was going to be going to Yukon, I was going to go to Oklahoma City, then I was going to go through Tulsa, all this area in Oklahoma, and the FBI was sure to be looking for me. Mm-hmm. And they're, they'll probably have helicopters and cars and everything all over Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, and if they see my car, I'm hit. I see. But now if I start driving back through all that country and rural area that I just passed, I got a better chance. And if I stay off the I-40, which I didn't know if it had cameras all on it or not, then I would have been fine. So I stuck to an access road. I got off. I was on I-40 for a minute. It was on an access road. Made it to, I don't know what city I was in. I don't know if it was a city called, uh, if it was Weatherford, or I think there's another city over there called Clinton or something. I don't know. But I found a gas station. And I filled up with gas and went back to Texas. And I was in this motel. I, I was back where I was, I was staying in a weekly rental motel. Flipped up my laptop, punched in bank robbery, El Reno, Oklahoma, September 29, 2018. Boom. There I was on the news. I'm like, okay. So I'm looking at the pictures. I'm like, all right, they uh, pretty grainy video. Don't have my license plate. All I got to do is change this, change that. Mm-hmm. All I got to do is shave my head because I had hair. Um, stay out of sight for a little while and they'll, they'll probably never find me. They didn't have anything. There was this girl that was in the room with me and she looked over my shoulder and she's like, is that you? Oh my God, you robbed a bank and all this and that. Oh, wow. That shit's gangster and all that. You <laughs> know what I mean? and I'm like, look, just, just don't say nothing. Nobody will talk about it. Period. And she's like, okay, well, you know me, I wouldn't do that to you and all that. I'm like, okay. So. Later on, she's, she's in another room with another girl and a friend of mine. They're in a bathroom smoking methamphetamine. And she just starts, blah, 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 blah. And this girl that she's with is like, where did he do this at? She goes, oh, I don't know. She goes, did he do it in town? She goes, no, he went out of town. Well, like Lubbock or no, further out of state. Oh, like Albuquerque? She says, no, I think Oklahoma. Oh, really? Uh, where at? And it's like, my buddy's like, hey, you guys should stop talking about this. 
Well, I didn't realize that this girl, you know, once she heard reward, she's just like, I'm going to turn his ass in for the reward. Mm -hmm. So her friend, like, they came back to my room and I was in there and I was all, I was all uh, badly messed up on like oxys and different drugs and she's in there and I'm thinking she's taking pictures of herself. She's taking pictures of me. She's contacted the FBI and is like, yeah, I got the guy that robbed the bank. He bragged about it. He told me about it. He showed me the money. What's up with the reward? So the next day, I got surrounded by the FBI, Texas Rangers, Am- Amarillo PD, and I just basically told them that I did it. I was done. I was sitting in this car, and I had all these laser dots and everything on me, and I knew that because I had my phone and everything again, I didn't have a a gun, a weapon at all. I knew all I had to do was pick up my phone and open my door and point it at him and I was dead. The misery was over. The pain was gone. I was free. But I looked over and I seen this girl sitting with this bike and she was looking at me and she was smiling. And I was trying to tell her, you know, get out of here. Get out of here. You're going to get killed. Get out of here. But she wouldn't leave. And the more I looked at her, the more I started to feel like everything was going to be okay. That my life was going to be fine. That I was going to be free. But I didn't have to die in order to gain my freedom. It was a huge defining moment at that moment. To to know that I was going to be free from all of this pain. All of this frustration. All of this sadness and guilt. That had been building up inside of me for so long that I was never able to talk about that I was never able to, to, to address, no counseling, nothing. I just had to live with it for almost 30 years. Mm-hmm. And I just decided to surrender, and I surrendered. I was laying on the pavement. <clears throat> they pulled my shirt off to see if I didn't have a gun or anything. I'm laying on the pavement. I stand up. This girl's gone. I don't know if she's a guardian angel. I don't know if it was my mind playing tricks on me or what, but I knew it was going to be okay. And I was done. I was done with that life. I I couldn't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. I couldn't live like that no more. I had to be free from it. And I didn't know how long I was going to be in prison. But I knew that I was going to prison. And I was going to be gone. I didn't even really know at the time why they were surrounding me. Because I was doing so much different stuff. Yeah. So finally when I got in the car and the guy stepped in, he's like, I'm agent such and such from the DEA. I'm like, DEA, and I was like, yeah, you know, God, this is you, right? Bank robbery? And there was another one from FBI. I said, yeah, that's me. I'm like, when's the DEA have anything to do with a bank robbery? He's just like, well, you know, you're a special case. And I'm like, I got nothing to say to you. Um, I don't know, like, why, and I never saw the DEA after that. But I told him I'm not going to talk about nothing except the bank robbery. Mm-hmm. You know, and I sit, I sat in there and I told them that, you know, I was sexually abused when I was 14 and all this stuff happened to me. And, you know, this is, you know, and the agent, FBI agent's like, what does it got to do with the bank robbery? I go, does everything to do with the bank robbery? I just, I just have to finally talk about this. Mm-hmm. I have to let it out. And they didn't care. But, they extradited me back here to Oklahoma. I pled guilty. 
got 71 months and sent to federal prison for almost six years. I went to Florence, Colorado. But before I went, like I didn't know how much time I was going to I thought I was going to get 20 years. It was on the news that I was facing 20 years. So my mom surprisingly thought, what a relief for you to be gone that long because now you're safe. That's how she looked at it. Mm -hmm. She knew I ran with the prison gangs and was, I did a lot in prison and I was strong in there and I was, you know, I wasn't a weakling. I wasn't a victim in prison. I was, I told myself after, after, after that happened to me when I was 14, I would never be a victim to anybody ever again. And I went full throttle into this lifestyle of, of being vicious and more violent and more deadly than everybody else because I felt that if I give you an inch, you're going to overpower me, and I can't let that happen. Yeah. So my mom felt that I was always safer in prison than on the streets, even though prison is much dangerous than the streets. But she, that's how she felt. I came back from court, and I said, Mom, good news. I'm getting 71 months. I'll be out in five years. She was, she was disappointed. And I'm like, what's your problem? What is a ma- what's the matter with you? Mm-hmm. She's just like, I'm sick and tired of you doing this to me. I'm tired of you breaking my heart. I'm tired of you constantly going in and out of there. You know how many times I've had to worry? You know how many times that every time that phone ring, I had to go through extreme fear thinking it was the cops telling me that you were dead? Because I'm sick of it. I, I can't take it anymore. I just... I don't know what I, I don't know if I even want to talk to you anymore. And I'm like, don't leave me now. You know, I don't have anybody. I need you. And I'm changing. I promise you. And she says, you say that all the time. Mm-hmm. I said, no, I never told you. I'm going to change. I told you I'll try. I go, but this is different. She goes, she goes, look, you just have to decide what you stand for in life. But as long as you stand for something, that's all that matters. So I said, okay. I created a journal that I was going to use to kind of guide me in changing. And I called the journal Stand for Something because mm-hmm. of what she told me. The first thing I had to do was is I had to try to form some kind of bond with her. Some way, somehow. So I wrote her a poetic letter. Yeah. Dear Mom, once again, cold prison bars separate me from you, from the world, from even myself, I think. And I ended it, love your son, and I sent it out to her. Well, my mom's been a poet since she was a little girl. So this poem kind of like opened her eyes to something and kind of like started to rekindle that love that was lost. Mm -hmm. And she wrote me a poem back saying, Dear son, you know, don't forget that a mother's heart is stronger than it seems. Love your mom. So we kept writing these letters back and forth over the time I was in prison. And we started getting closer and closer. And for some reason, she was telling me, she goes, I have something different about you. Mm-hmm. there's something different. I don't know what it is, but you just don't sound the same. You know, I wasn't calling her talking about prison drama like I always used to do. And, and uh, yeah, I was in the shoe. I was doing it in the shoe. I was in the hole because, you know, I had to stab this guy or I had to do this or I had to do that. She wasn't hearing all that. She was hearing about, yeah, I'm in this class right now and I'm learning this. Or I'm doing, I work in this factory. I'm paying all the money back that I owe. Um, Hey, Mom, I just spoke in front of a a group of a bunch of kids, at-risk youth that came in on the Inside Out program and this and that. And then uh, 
this counselor, his name is Counselor Thomas Quintana, started a program called Doing Time with the Right Mind. Mm-hmm. And I became a part of that program and I became a kind of like a guiding mentor in there afterwards. And he wrote my mom a letter saying, I want you, you know, your son is a part of my program. My name is Counselor Quintana. I've been doing this for X amount of years. Your son's in my program. And what I want you to do, if you can, please write him an impact letter explaining just exactly how everything that he's done has affected you in your life. So I had to read this letter in front of a group of people and it blew my mind that how much pain I had caused her. It was hard to read. Yeah. Um, We, it, but it formed the bond tighter because in the letters she said that I now have hope. Something is telling me that my son's changed. Yeah. I was able to do a video where I was like, hi, mom, you know, I'm your son. And, you know, I just want to tell you I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And Counselor Quintana, like, put it onto a CD, burned it on a, a DVD, sent it to my mom. And my mom turned it on at Christmas time with my sisters and all the rest of my family. And they all watched it. My sisters and everybody in the room was like, I don't believe a word he's saying. Same old crap. Same old BS. He's going to get out and he's going to do the same shit, mom. And she's just like, no, no, there's something different about my son. There's something that's different about him, I promise you. Well, halfway into my term, my mom revealed to me that she had cancer. And that the cancer was in her lung and it was in her bone and it was spreading. You know, she tried to do chemo. She tried to do radiation, but it was too hard for her. Um, The cost of it was outrageous. She couldn't pay for it. She tried to go through various different services. Nobody would, she couldn't really get the full funding. Like people would meet her part of the way, like certain services, but you had to pay this or you had to pay that. It was like they've, they've gone through hundreds of thousands of dollars and still it did no good. Yeah. The cancer had spread and then it finally it was spreading into her brain. And I was about six months to getting out. I was telling her, hold on, mom, hold on. I'm just about ready to get out. Just hold on. And she's like, I don't think I can. And I said, well, she's like, look, I want to tell you some stuff before I completely lose my mind because it's in my brain at this point. She said, but I'm very proud of you. I know you've changed. And I want you to make me two promises. I said, what's that, mom? She says, I want you to promise me that you'll publish our poetry, turn it into a book. The world needs to hear it. Other moms and dads that are going through this need to hear it. Our story needs to be their story. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, mom, I'll do that. She's like, the second thing I want you to do is I want you to become a criminal justice reform activist. I want you to help people get out of prison and stay out. I know you could do it. She says, I've had dreams about you speaking in front of cameras and in speaking in front of crowds yeah. and starting an organization and doing this and doing that. And I'm thinking in my mind, she's crazy. <laughs> There's no way I could do all that. I've been a gangster my whole life. Right. I've been a criminal my entire life. All I know is crime. Um, how am I going to do all that? But I promised. And when I give my word, my word's my bond. Mm-hmm. Regardless, if I tell you that I'm going to do something, I'll do it. Just like paying that debt. If I tell you I'm going to pay that debt, I'm going to pay you that debt. Even if my plan was I was going to kill him. But once I robbed that bank, I'm like, now I got all this cash. 
I could just pay these dudes and be done with it. Yeah. And I, I was going to pay it. I'm like, I got myself in this situation by keeping my word. Always kept my word. If I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And there's just the way, that's the way I, I've always been. I was taught that way. So I told her, I promise. And she knew I was a man of my word. Mm-hmm. That's why she always knew that I never promised that I was going to do good. Other people might have heard, yeah, I'm changed. I'm a changed man. I'm going to get out and do good. But I've always like, I'll try. I'll give it a shot. But I can't guarantee you. And I can't promise you nothing. I'm a, I'm a criminal. I'm a gangster. I'm all tatted up. <laughs> Who's going to want to hire me? Who's going to want to have anything to do with me? You know what I mean? It's just like I'm born to die in these streets. So I don't have nothing to look forward to. So, But this time was different. It's like I'm going to make it happen. Yeah, I'm going to make it work. So my mom said, okay, thank you. And I told her, well, mom, if I'm going to finish, if I'm going to publish our book, you've got one poem left to write. You need to write that last poem. And she said, okay. I don't know how she did it out of a hospice. She wrote that last poem and then she died three weeks later. Yeah. This yeah. book right here. That's yeah. right. I actually bought that book. I bought both of them. Yeah. And I didn't even know what the title it was going to be, but I thought, well, the poems are called Dear Mom, Dear Son, Dear Mom, Dear Son, Dear Mom, Dear Son. So I titled the book Dear Mom, Dear Son. And I put separated by the subtitle, separated by bars, not the heart. Because even though the bars had separated us, even though all this concrete, all these miles of distance separated me and her, our hearts were always connected. Yeah. And the funny thing about my mother, when she passed away, I got a chance to talk to her like, just just as she was dying. She she was very weak, very faint. You know, she was telling me that, you know, I'm going to see your dad. Your dad says he loves you and all that stuff. Um, and then she died. But she donated her body to science. She didn't want to have a funeral. She didn't want, like, people to mourn her and all that stuff like that. She She just wanted to give her body to science so they could study. Maybe she can help people. And the weird thing about it is like all this paperwork came in from the, from the science research facility to the caseworker at the, at the prison. And like, they're like, you have to read all this stuff to him and you have to explain it to him. You have to like, he needed, they needed a witness to be there. Mm-hmm. So I'm reading all this stuff and they're talking about what they do to the, to the, to the donated body. Like, they'll blow them up, you know, they'll stick them in a car and crash them, put them on, like, run them through all kinds of strange... And this counselor's reading all this stuff, and she's just like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. How can you stay so calm reading about reading this stuff, knowing that this is what they're going to do with your mom? Yeah. I'm like, that's what she wanted. How am I, how, what am I to say? She's like, wow, this... Because I took a cognitive thinking program, and that's where I was living in. I've been in that program for over a year, two years almost. I graduated the program and stayed in the unit and started teaching the curriculum, became a mentor and a guide through the program. In prison. In prison, yeah. yeah. She's like, how are you staying so calm in all this? I go, I'm using my tools, Miss Baker. (laughs) You know, I'm using my tools. Yeah. Or her name was Baker, but then she changed it to Childers because she got married. I was like, yeah, Miss Childers, Baker. Um, I'm using my tools. And she's just like, wow. She's like, you... Your mom would really be proud. So yeah. I signed off my mom's body because it took my sisters, both of their signatures and my signature to officially release her body. 
So then I asked my brother-in-law, I was talking to him on the phone, and I go, do you happen to know where they're taking her? Because she can go anywhere in the world. I mean, they could strip her all her skin off, and she could be like the skeleton that's hanging in some cla- classroom somewhere. Mm-hmm. Who knows? You never know. He's like, yeah, we know where, they, where she went. I go, where did she go? He said, Colorado Springs. Wow. I'm like, what? Mm. He goes, Colorado Springs. I go, dude, do you realize that's right up the street from me? Yep. My mom probably flew over me like wow. an angel. It was truly like the greatest defining moment of my life that this is who I was from now on. I had a piece of my mother inside of me. Her, her um, optimism, her, you know, willing, her, her ability or inability to allow negativity to fully affect her or bring her down. Um, all these things are within me now. And they told me that, you know, my sisters didn't want me. I had nowhere to go. So I'm like, where am I going to release to? I tried to go back to California with my native home. They're like, well, you don't have any, anybody there to go to. <clears throat> tried to go to Maryland to live with my mentor that I had, Victor Landa. They said, no way. We don't want this guy in our district. Where do I go? Well, you got to go to the Western District of Oklahoma. Oklahoma? What the hell am I going to do in Oklahoma? They said, well, that's where you <laughs> robbed the bank. That's where you got to go. I go, I don't know anybody there. Why can't I go live with my mentor? It was like, well, they don't want you there. Yeah. But well, you could take me back to California. They don't want you there. Nobody wanted me any, anywhere. But Oklahoma had to take me. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure if Oklahoma had a choice, they wouldn't want me either. I would literally be like a refugee with nowhere to go. But Oklahoma had to take me because they sentenced me. Yeah. I go, I don't know anybody there. I've never lived there. I don't have any family there. I didn't even know the state existed until I drove through it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I knew it was there, but it's just, you know what I'm saying. I'm with you. I didn't even know how big the state was. I thought it was like a little New Jersey type, you know, state. And I remember when I looked at it on the map, I'm like, wow, man, it really is a big state. <laughs> you know, because I kind of took it and I compared it to California. And I'm like, yeah, I've, I've driven that far through California. Wow, man, I never would have made it. I, I would have just probably gotten a few more blocks and my, my car would have been done. I yeah. probably wouldn't have even made it to Yukon. No way. So... I'm like, okay, I'm releasing Oklahoma. My mom passed away six months later. I got out January uh, 12th, January 11th, actually. I didn't get here until the late night, January 12th, 2017. I stepped off the bus, the Greyhound bus station on Reno Avenue. Yeah. With $38, a pair of thongs, sweatpants, a t-shirt, and a duffel bag. That's it. That's all Which I you had. brought to yeah. show on video. I'll go ahead and show you. These shoes, those are the thongs. These are the thongs that I wore here in the middle of January in Oklahoma. Now, I didn't know what January in Oklahoma looked like because I've never been here. So I didn't know that you must have looked like a straight madman to be walking around in Oklahoma. Look at how wore out these things are. (laughs) Walking around in these things with this pair, these pair of, Gigantic sweatpants. Yeah, looked like about a forty-two. <laughs> try a try a size 
Triple XL, 44-46. Man. You could sleep in these things, Wong, as a sleeping bag. You lost so much weight since then, by the way. Yeah. You look really good. Thank you. This t-shirt. And this duffel bag. Wow. And that was it. That was it. Shirt on my back, those flip-flop thongs. In January in Oklahoma, it was freezing. I walked off of that bus, I, you know, nice, warm, heated bus. I, th- I felt like I walked into a meat locker. Oh, yeah. It, it was cold. so cold. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, my God, it's freezing. Yeah. What am I? I'm just out there like, <laughs> you know. I'm basically trying to pull the sweatpants up over my head. And they're big enough, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, there was no pay phones anywhere. I'm like, how does somebody call a cab? Everybody <laughs> has cell phones. And I asked, can somebody please let me use your phone? Nobody wanted to let me use their phone. Yeah. Um, finally, some lady said, I called you a cab right now. So when you see a cab pull up, just, I didn't know where I was supposed to go. I had this address, but I didn't know where it was. And he's like, where are you going? I said, I have no idea. Here. And he didn't even know where it was, so he had to punch it in his, UP, his GPS. And he took me there, and I, I got out. I had no idea where I was. I seen the Devon Tower and all that, or I didn't know it was called the Devon Tower at the time. Right, right. All I said is that big, you know, huge skyscraper that's out there. I don't know what it's Oh, the Devon Tower. Is that what it's called? I had no idea. Yeah. So made it to this halfway house, got in there, and I'm just like, well, I need to go to the store. I need to get, you know, a pair of shoes and stuff like that. And they laughed. Well, you, you can't go to the store. You have to have your family send you stuff. And I go, I don't have nobody who can send me anything. I'm here all alone. They're like, well, bummer. I don't to tell you. I go, well, how does one get a job if I don't have any shoes? You got to have your family. I don't have any family. I just told you. Well, uh, you know, maybe you could borrow a pair from somebody in here. And I go, okay, forget about that. How do I get my driver's license? Like, well, you got to go to the tag agency. I go, what in the? It's a tag agency. Yeah. I go, you mean the DMV? Because I'm from California. Right, right. They're like, DM what? <laughs> I go, where I go to get my driver's license, the, the Department of Motor Vehicles, the DMV, the DMV. Yeah. They're like, I don't know what you're talking about. You have to go to the tag agency. I'm like, all right, well, where is this tag agency? They go, it's on East Broadway. Okay, which way is east? They're like, well, you'll figure it out. And this is the attitude wow. of the people that are trying to help you reintegrate into society. Mm. And people wonder why the recidivism is so high. Yeah. You know, but so I get outside. You know how I found East? I looked at the direction the sun yeah. was rising. I mean, I at least knew that much. It must be my Viking ancestry or something, but I knew how to navigate by following the sun. Right. I'm walking around in the botanical gardens by the Devon Tower, lost. I had no idea where I was. I had like five minutes to get to my location where I was, I was considered an escape because mm. I had to call once I got there. Yeah. So I asked somebody, I go, does anybody know where this tag agency is yeah. or whatever it's called? And this guy goes, oh, yeah, that's it right there. So I'm like, shit. And I get there. <laughs> I go up there and I'm, I call them right at, the, right at the time. They go, you're a minute late. I'm like, well, I had trouble finding this place since I didn't have a map. Yeah. They go, yeah, well, don't be late ever again. All right, you're there. Checked in, Rutherford. Hung up. I'm like, hi, I'm here to uh, get my driver's license. And they're like, oh, okay. Uh, 
well, what's your what's your Oklahoma? And I said, well, actually, I have a Texas driver's. Oh, you got to go to the department. Of, you got to go to the DPS office. Uh... I'm like. So then I go, I go back and I go, I got to go to the DPS office. They go, oh, yeah, that's right. You had an out-of-state license. I should have told you that from the get-go. <clears throat> I go to the DPS office. Like I said, $38 is all I had. Mm-hmm. And I go, they go, well, I hope you have the money to pay for it because it's going to cost you about $37.50 or $35. Bucks. And I go, that's all the money I got. I go, don't you guys get vouchers for all that? They looked at each other and laughed. Wow. No. This is all on you. You got to have your family send. Oh, yeah, I know. Sam, my family send me the money, right? Okay, yeah, I don't have that. All right. Okay. So I spent all my money in getting that. At least they gave you bus passes, but you had to give them the bus pass back. So I went down there and told me I want my Texas driver's license. They go, oh, well, your license is expired. We can't find it in the system. You don't have the physical copy. So you're just going to have to start all over again. I go, well, can I get an ID at least? And they gave me an ID, a red one. Yeah, yeah. So I had an ID, and I'm like, okay, at least I can get a job, and I can go out and look for a job. Beating the pavement in these things. In the freezing cold, man. Yeah. Going to the Goodwill Center every day looking for a job. All these negative Nancys in this halfway house. Oh, you can't do this. You can't do that. They ain't going to let you do this. They ain't going to let you go there. They ain't going to let you do that. They ain't going to let you do this. And I'm just like, well, what can I do here? Nothing. Look at the pond. Look at the fish. Eat bologna sandwiches. Because that's all they fed you. Bologna sandwiches and beans. Beans and bologna sandwiches. I felt like I was still in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, I ate better in prison, actually, than I ended at this halfway house. And it was so depressing in this place. It was so negative And so, like, bitter and pessimistic from everyone. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get my own apartment. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, right. They're not going to let you do that. I tried that. They wouldn't let me do that. I go, well, I'll get a week. No, nope, can't live in a weekly motel. I go, where am I going to go when I get out of here? They said, well, they'll just keep you here. They could keep you here up to two years. Mm-hmm. That scared the shit out of me. I'm like, no way. Yeah. Am I going to stay in this place any longer? Impossible. And I'm going to get myself out of here. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get out of here. I go, I'm going to probably look get a job with Coca-Cola. Yeah, good luck, Coca-Cola. Don't hire people at the halfway house. I go, well, I'll get a job over here. What is it, Eureka, the water place? Nope, don't mm-hmm. hire us. Well, there's a construction crew building this building. and I don't know what building it is, this building right outside of the by the Devon Tower, that's, you know, the Oklahoma bank building. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, nope, they won't hire us. How about Pepsi? Nope. Oil fields? Nope. Well, where can I get a job? Well, they, well, a lot of guys around here are working at Dunkin' Donuts. Um, some of these guys are working for property management, and the other guys are working for Batliner. I go, what is Batliner doing? They go, they sort out all this trash. How much do they pay? Seven forty something an hour. How much does Dunkin' Donuts pay? Seven forty something an hour. How about property management? Seven forty seven an hour. I'm like, okay, well, I'll take anything. I'm willing to take anything. I went, I, I, I applied for all of them. None of them hired me. They're like, no, nope, no, nope, we don't want you. We were already full. We don't need any more people. So, somebody put me up on this twenty one C. Said apply twenty one C. They hire bank robbers, whatever, mass murderers. <laughs> cannibals okay <laughs> i'm just kidding but you know what i mean they said no yeah. there was a guy that was here is his, his name was um caleb and he was a bank robber they hired him so they're sure for sure to hire you i go okay so this place gives chances gives to, chances to people right. i'm with you beautiful thing right no judgments here yeah you know i mean i'm pretty sure that if you have like a, a 
a crazy sex offense or something. They don't want you there because there's a lot of guests and children running around. Yeah, yeah. But for the most part, they're giving you a shot. So I applied. They told me, apply for the steward position. That's the only one that you'll get at this point. So I applied for the steward position. Didn't hear any, you know, I, I, I finally, like, I didn't have a phone. So I'm thinking, anybody I'm applying for, they got to call the front desk and leave them a message and say, you know, tell them to call us. You know, we want to hire them. But this, this has been proven to be very hard on a lot of people. If you don't know anybody here, you got me, I don't have anybody. Every Saturday and Sunday when people would come, their family would come in, they'd be barbecuing, you know, barbecuing burgers and running around with their kids and laughing and having a gay old time. I'm sitting in my room just staring at the wall yeah. every week. You know, they're all sticking feet and all this money into vending machines, wearing all these nice flashy clothes. The guy sitting in there with seven pairs of shoes next to his bed, and I'm wearing these, these shower shoes. Yeah. And they're all just sitting in there, just, just biding their time because they got mommy and daddy's house they can go crash at. They got some girl they met off plenty of fish they can go crash at. <laughs> What's plenty of fish? It's a dating app. Oh, okay. All these guys are like, yeah, I met this girl off plenty of fish, man. I got her locked, man. She feeds me before she even feeds her kids. And I'm sitting here with nobody and nothing. Okay? Wow. Yeah. So I'm thinking like, wow. I go, at least I have my morals, my respect, and my dignity. At least, at least I have my my peace and my humility, and I, I, my intentions are good. Something good has to happen for me. If it's happening for these dirtbags, something good has to happen for me. So I finally called my mentor in Maryland. I said, can you please, I said, I will pay you back. I will do whatever it takes. Send me a little Nokia, just a, a dummy phone. It's, they're about 30 bucks. I go, I need it. Or I won't be able to get a job because these people don't give us our messages. They don't care. We're just here. Just to, they're just there to do their eight hours and go home. They're more concerned with security mm-hmm. than with helping these people get back into society. They have nothing there to offer you at all. And they, they, they screw up things so much that they've, had, they've gotten people fired from their jobs mm-hmm. by screwing up paperwork, by screwing up schedules and stuff. So... This is what I was faced with. All this negativity, all this, all these, all this um, obstacles. But I kept the focus. I kept saying, I'm not going to let this define me. This ain't going to be what it is for me. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it through all this. Nothing's going to stop me. I got this, Mom. You know? Yeah. So I called, my, I called my mentor, Victor, and he goes, yeah, he sent me the phone. Thank God now I had a phone. So now that I'm looking for a job, I actually have a phone number. Um, the, somebody who worked at the hotel said, Hey man, they want to hire you as a steward over there at 21 C hotel, but they can't find you. They don't have the number. I go, well, here, give them my number. Give them my name. There's my new, I got a new phone. Look, I got a new phone. Yeah. Give my number. And, uh, so this guy called me up, chef Jason Campbell. And he says, yeah, I can come down for an interview. I said, yeah, de- absolutely. When do you want me to come down right now? If you want, he's like, no, no, not right now, but you know, tomorrow or something. I said, okay, I'm there. Mm-hmm. So I filled out the pass and I went down there. Dude, I didn't have nothing to wear for this interview. It was a, embarrassing that I had to go into an interview with these on. Um, I found a dirty old shirt that was actually in the trash. It was a dress shirt and I washed it. I'm like, wow, what, what luck I have. A mm. dress shirt. 
I found it, and I, I ran it through the wash, and I pulled it out. The thing had ring around the collar so bad, right? I thought that it was actually a stripe that was into the fabric. It was, you know, it was, I'm like, there's no stripes anywhere else in this shirt. Why is there a stripe around the collar? Yeah. I'm like, that's ring around the collar. It's bad. There's a giant coffee stain right here. And I'm like, I don't have any choice. I don't have anything else. I put the shirt on, tucked it into my sweatpants wow. with my flip-flops on, and went down and applied for a job like that at 21C Hotel. And I told him, I said, for the love of God, man, just give me a chance. Yeah. I go, I promise you I'll be the best dishwasher you've ever had. I'll get, that, I'll get them dishes so spotless that, that you'll, they'll be able to see themselves in the silverware. I'll polish it. I'll do this. I'll do. He's just like... All right, just take it easy. You're, you, you, you got it. Just let me run the background check. And you're like, oh, the background check. I go, look, man, I got a bank robber. He goes, yeah, no sweat. We had a bank robber here already. We fired him, though. <laughs> I'm like, all right, well, you're not going to have any problems for me. He goes, no, I don't think I will. He goes, I want to give you a chance. I go, you know what? I kind of want to like get into culinary, too. I'd like to you know, be a chef and all that. He goes, well, you got to start out as a line cook first. But let's just... Focus on the steward right now. Yeah. I said, oh, yeah, you got it. You got it. You got it, uh, Mr. Campbell. I got you. He goes, call me Chef. I'm like, okay, Chef, you got it. Chef you Campbell. Know, chef, chef Jason Campbell. Right? Gotcha. So he called me a couple days later and says, you're in. He goes, so we're going to start you out at $10 an hour. And I was like, great. Not $747. It's better, it's better than working at <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts. Right. You know, I go, I, go, I, I, don't, I, I don't know what to say. So I started in there, and I walked in there into this dish pit. And guess what I was wearing? Flip-flops. Flip-flops working in a slippery dish pit. You know, and they used to talk a good one, too, back at the prison. They're like, oh, you can get with the Workforce Center. They're going to give you vouchers. You're going to get all these grants and all these things and monies. This red carpet is going to roll out. They're going to give you clothes, work clothes, tools, and all that. B.S. B.S. There's none of that stuff, yeah. right? You, if you don't have your family to send it to you or some lady you met off plenty of fish that's starving her kids just to make sure that you're wearing Jordans and jeans, wow. Levi's, yeah. you're not going to get it, right? Yeah. So somebody like me is just like, there's no way. There's no way, right? I go in there and there's this guy, Wayne, working in there. He goes, man, take them things off, man. I got you, man. I got an old pair of boots in the back. They stink, but they're better than those things. Yeah. But I kept them because I want to look at them every single day and remember that this is where I started, these shoes. I love it, man. And, I mean, working in that hotel, I saved my money and I sacrificed in that halfway house. While everybody's walking around with giant foot-long Subway sandwiches and pizzas and sodas and candy and all that stuff and flashing cash and nice clothes, I didn't have anything. I bought work clothes. I bought some wet boots, some work pants, some underwear and socks and shirts to work in because I was coming home wearing, wearing sweatpants that were just filthy, nasty, disgusting. Those pants, yeah. that shirt, every day I had to wear it. I had nothing else to wear. Finally, wow. like after I got my first check was, was basically nothing. I had to pay the halfway house their dues. And then I ran to work one day. Wearing the flip flops, I just took them off and ran on my bare feet. You know, not easier. And put yeah, and put the put the water boots on. Ran there to get there early to get on the computer and order some stuff from Walmart and have it mailed to me, shipped to me. My boss that was there, his guy, his name was TJ. 
He goes, dude, just go ahead. I got the dishes. You go order your stuff. So he let me go back and order my stuff, and I did. Had it sent wow. to me. And that's all I had. But I saved my money. And I, I said that I'm going to get my place. I got a, a couple more. I got about a month or so left, and then I, I'm eligible for home confinement. It's a long shot. But if I can get myself somewhere to live, I can get out of this halfway house and go on house arrest somewhere. Mm-hmm. All I got to do is put in a phone, um, have it like have it approved as a residence, do all that. But how am I going to do that? So I'm looking all around, trying to get places to live. Nobody, I'm like, well, I'm a part of the halfway house. So I'm going to do this. They're like, oh, wait a minute, you're a felon. Now you can't live here. Mm. Now you can't live here. Now you can't live here. So this guy was working named Carl said, hey, man, there's an apartment available where I'm at. I'm just like two blocks from here. You could walk here. I go, how much? He goes, I don't know, about five fifty, six fifty. Done. Give me the number. And I called the guy. His name was uh, Matt Warren. He goes, yeah, you know, uh, that'd be great, man. Why don't you come down and uh, take I said, no, sold, man. Just bring me the paperwork. Uh-huh. He goes, don't you want to look? No, I don't want to look at it. He's like, yeah, but, you know, I mean, I think you're, I don't want to see it. Just bring me the, the lease. Better than where I'm at. And he didn't bring me the lease. So I called him again. I'm like, dude, I'm serious. He goes, well, I would much rather you. I said, all right, fine. I'll go down and look at it. I talked him into letting me go look at it. Mm-hmm. I went, I, you know, I walked in there. He opened the door, stepped in there. Yeah, great. Come on in and sign the lease. He's like, yeah, but I just, you know, signed the lease, gave him, gave him the money and told him I won't be able to move in here right away. Can I have a phone put in here? AT&T or Cox Cable or whoever. Yeah, sure. You can, you can do all that. My, my maintenance guy will take care of all that. So I had a phone put in there. I had my caseworker come over there and look and he goes, he goes I got to tell you, man, because I'm impressed. This is actually better in my place. And also, how the hell did you do it on your own? Mm-hmm. You, I mean, how did you do it? I said, I just made it happen, man, because I didn't give up and didn't quit. He goes, well, I'm approving this. A couple weeks later, I was in home confinement. I was sleeping on a blow-up mattress with nothing else in that house but a tea kettle to heat up my water and, and one plate and two plastic, uh, like, Little like you know stuff you get at a takeout place, plastic fork and a plastic yeah. spoon, and that's it. That's all I had. I had nothing. It was a completely empty. I can go, uh, you know, like that, and it would echo. There was nothing in this apartment, and I did it. And I started from there, and I kept working and working and and saving my money, and I started going to culinary school for a little while. I started to work another job. Got off home confinement. Bought my car. Um, the day I got off home confinement, that eighty-five Cutlass, and so I had a car. I had my own apartment. You know, drug-free, living my life, working a job. So my next step was to get this book right here published, this Dear Mom, Dear Son book. Yeah, and I started putting it all together editing it, putting all the commentary that we had in between each exchange. And um, it was the hardest thing I had to do, man. I had to stop. I cried a lot. Yeah. I just finally got it done. And I published it on Mother's Day last year. Yeah. And... But I didn't know where to sell it because I was self-publishing. I didn't have editors. I didn't have, you know, proofreaders and all that stuff you know, an army of them around me to, 
So, I mean, I designed the cover myself. I, I, you know, did all the artwork that's in here, different artwork and stuff that I did. I did, I drew that stuff in prison. A lot of it. Um, I'm like, where do I start? How do I sell this book? My sister told me, why don't you go on Facebook and look up, you know, mothers of incarcerated sons groups. Mm -hmm. So I started joining all these groups and I started talking to all these different mothers. And I said, you know what? I, I go, I know you guys don't want people to advertise and stuff. And, and, but I really want you all to read this book. I mean, it's, it's going to a noble cause because the money's going to help build this nonprofit that I want to start to help your sons and daughters get out and stay out. Yeah. And I started doing videos and I started reaching out to more people and I started spreading further and further. And I finally got my nonprofit established in September last year. Yeah. So is this your way of giving back to society? Yeah. So the nonprofit's called Stand for Something Life Incorporated. And the foundation for Stand for Something Life Incorporated is this book, An Imprisoned Mind, A Guide to Escape in Our Self-Made Prison. That's your second book. This is my second book, yes. And this is basically the foundation, the blueprint, the guide for anybody and everybody who lives in an imprisoned mind yeah. can escape and release themselves from that and seize control of their destiny. Yeah. No matter who they are. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, mind you. It doesn't have to be somebody who was incarcerated. Right. It could be anybody. You could be trapped in a bad marriage, bad job, low self-esteem. The tools and the, and the skills and, and the emotional intelligence that is in the pages of this book can help anyone break free from their self-made prison. Man, I love it. So you're 44. You spent almost half of your life in state, federal penitentiaries. Your mom passes away while you're in there. She happens to, her body happens to be flown into Colorado State while you're still in prison, six months away from your release. You get released from the Colorado State prison with $38. You land in Oklahoma on a Greyhound bus. You basically put yourself into a situation where you start from the bottom. I guess you start from the bottom and now you're here. Pretty much. Working your way through levels. Right. Right. So with all that being said, you contribute back to society by starting this nonprofit, Stand for Something Life. What's your path forward from this point on? Well, um, I'm working on my third book. It's called The Laughing Boy. Right on. Uh, that, that book is basically in detail everything that I told you would happen when I was 14. And I put a, a, a strong warning label on the front of it. I said, warning, this book is very, very detailed. It has to be. Mm -hmm. I can't sugarcoat it. Or, you know, I've read, I've read other people's survival stories. And, you know, they've either, like, found some form of religion or, or spiritual purpose in their life. And they, they just kind of, like, brush over it. And it's it's kind of it's 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 not really giving you the like you you know wow something bad happened to this person but you don't really get the feel of it. Right. This book is written like a novel. It's a biography, but it's like a novel. It's it's basically all of the everything, every detail, everything that was that was said, everything that was done in graphic detail of what they were doing to us. I feel that it's the best way 
that I can give the strongest impact and impression and, under, and, and to help people understand that this stuff is real. Yeah. That there are people out there in the world that are doing this. And in order to bring awareness to it, you have to experience it like if you were right there in the room with us. Wow. And with that, I want to reach out to organizations. I want to get out there and talk to schools. I want to let kids know that in this day and age that these, these predators, they've evolved their tactics. They mm-hmm. use online, social media. Um, people can lure you into a party. You can, you could think, you know, some girl, you can think that you're going to meet the guy of your dreams or whatever. You go to a party and, and, and you could find out that you're never allowed to leave. Right. Somebody could just snatch you off the street easily. You know, you could put yourself in a high risk situation, learning how to identify this stuff and learn how to be more mindful of your surroundings and to always learn from my mistake. Cause I couldn't find that house. Always know where you're at at all times. Turn on your GPS, send a text message to somebody, you know, when you're in your last location, always be connected because we just saw how some lady thought that she, that her Uber showed up. This was all over the news. Oh yeah. 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 Shot the, her Uber showed up. She gets in the car and they found her dead. Yeah. That's how easy it is. People need to understand that there are sick, twisted people out there. And at any given moment, you could be snatched up and you could be used. You could be sold into slavery. You could be sold into prostitution. These things are very real. They seem fantastic and, and far-fetched. But how fantastic and far-fetched was it for Regina de Jesus and, and Michelle Knight and them that were kidnapped by Ariel Castro and held in a dungeon for 10 years or Philip Garrido that held that girl in California for 18 years. Yeah. Um, this happens all the time and people just would turn a blind eye to it back in my, in the, in 1988 when I was young. But now it's like people are more connected. You got Amber alerts, you got Megan's law, but still, there's a lot of human trafficking and exploitation going on in this world. And I just want to bring awareness to it. And at the same time, I want to take on criminal justice reform in a way that makes sense. Because what I'm seeing from my fellow activists and advocates is you're just you're spinning your wheels and you're going around and around and you're not really getting any real results that I believe that the only way to fix the prison system in this country is to abolish it as it currently exists and recreate it into something that actually is effective and works, something more therapeutic, something more rehabilitative, something that leads towards a pathway to a complete restoration of your constitutional rights. And I, I love that, J.D., and with that being said, my wife and I have started a catch-up and conversation where we meet up with the, the guest again, and if you agree to it, you come back on, and there, there are some questions that we want to ask, and that, that topic right there is probably one that I'd love to hit on more in detail on a catch-up and conversation if you're interested. Yeah. What I'd like to also know in the next podcast interview with you is 
the mindset when you were in the prison, the mindset now that you're out of prison, how many, obviously we know how many years, but when you were in there, what was it really like? What, yes. what did you, what were the type of people that were imprisoned in there? What was the lifestyle? You know what I mean? So maybe in a few weeks, if you don't mind, you have the time. Absolutely. Love to have you come back. I always back. have time and, for you. You know what I mean? I appreciate that. I mean, man. I'm here. I appreciate that. Last couple of questions for you. How do you want to be remembered? How do I want to be remembered? Well, I don't want to be remembered as the one I was of yesterday. But what I want, I really want to be remembered as, as a person that actually beat their statistics, their odds. I was considered to be 99.9% likely to recidivate within the first few months of release. About 80-something percent likely to reoffend within the first year of release. Um, 99.9% likely to re, uh, uh, abuse drugs mm-hmm. within the first 60 days. Right. And I've been out for well over two years now. Yep. And they don't know how the hell it's happening. They don't know how the hell I've done what I've done. They don't know, like... What I'm doing, what is it that I've done differently that others can't do? Somebody that had nothing but this. And the probation officers have been to my house and they're like, wow, that's all you had. And look at you. Mm -hmm. It's just like, dude, you should be proud of yourself, man. You should be speaking everywhere. People should be like putting the camera on you and asking you, how did you do it? Because we need to know. I agree. Because there's a lot of people out there that are in this game criminal justice reform and you listen to their stories and 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 they've been to prison like me they were down and out they were locked behind the bars they get out i asked them okay well where did you go some of them asked where did you go well i went back home well who did you live with you know you know my mom and you will see you had all these things already waiting for you. you had a support system set up you had people you had a wife you had kids you had this you had that you know, other lady I talked to, she had this big old huge church network mm-hmm. that locked her in, man, gave her everything. You know, clothes, got her on her feet, put her out on the spotlight, hooked her up with like the Kardashians and the and the Oprah Winfrey's of the world. Yeah. I didn't have any of that stuff. And what does that tell you about using that as a model, as as the focus? It's like this dude was able to do something with nothing. Most people that get out are going to have nothing. Are they going to look to the guy that had his wife and his, and his brothers and uncles and aunts and just this huge family system of support that rolled out the red carpet? You got a place to live. You could drive my car and get a job, all these things. These people don't have that. Boom, they're right back to slamming dope, robbing people. They got to see people like me. So I want to be remembered as the guy that did what none of them were able to do. If you would have put them in the same situation, would they have been able to achieve the results that they've achieved today with nobody guiding them, nobody helping them, just all by yourself, like naked and afraid, the TV show on an island in the middle of nowhere, like Survivor, like Tom Hanks and Castaway. I didn't even have Wilson. That's how bad it was. Can you achieve the results that I've achieved with what you were given, which was nothing? No privilege cards, none of these things that everybody says. 
nothing but this that you see here is right. it. So I want to be remembered as the guy that did that. Because the guy that did that is the one that can tell the system, you need to fix this. You need to fix this, fix this, fix this. Because if you don't fix this, fix this, fix this, the recidivism is never going to stop. The revolving door is never going to end. People are going to constantly make victims of themselves, their families, and and people in society. Yeah. Because you you refuse to let go of this punishment-centered institutional system that does not work. And you have to, you have to develop strong family ties, um, the ability to um, create a, uh, an environment for somebody where they can have hope. I like it, man. I want to be the guy that is spearheading um, a mass movement of standing for something. And we're standing for something life. And our life is rebuilding ourselves, rebuilding our society, rebuilding our communities, forming new ties, moving away from all this identity, group thinking, idiocy, idiosyncrasy, or whatever you want to call it, stupidity. And, <laughs> and, and, and just basically all stand up and, and come together as a people and tackle these issues. I want to be in the middle of that. I want to be the guy that did that. When you think of me and you, you run my name in Wikipedia 50 years from today, I wanted to say criminal justice reformer, prison abolitionist, author, writer, founder of non, nonprofit organization Stand for Something Life. Um, this man like achieved odds that, that nobody ever thought possible. I love that, man. You yeah. use a term, phrase, recidivism rate, quite a bit throughout the podcast and for our listeners that means the percentage of repeating going back into the prison system was relatively high I, last time i remember it's like high 80s low 90s absolutely and so it's ridiculous yeah it's ridiculous and what you've done you've been able to beat that to this point and you're making that difference going forward and i love i cannot wait to get you back in here in a few months to catch up and converse with you about stand for something in life, your mindset, things that pertain to your past and how you're attacking that going forward. Last question, how do we get in touch with you? You can um, go to my website. It's www.standforsomething.life. Um, you can find me, J.D. Rutherford, on Facebook, just Capital J, capital D, Rutherford, Facebook. You'll see it says Founder Stand for Something Life right on there. Um, at JD underscore Rutherford at Twitter. Author JD Rutherford on Instagram. And you can also send me a personalized email to my email. It's jajaru13 at outlook.com. I love that, man. I'm so excited that we had this time to do this podcast. I'm very honored to be your friend, and I'm proud of you, man, and I love you for just being J.D. Rutherford. I appreciate you, man. Yep. All right. You ready to clap it out? Yeah. Ready? Do it. Ready? One, both of us. One, One two, two, three. J.D., do you approve this podcast? I approve this podcast, Wong Lam. My name is Wong Lam, and I approve this podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have a defining moment or moments you would like to share, please reach out to me. 
I would love to visit with you about it and share it with the world on a podcast. Here's how to find me. Visit my website, www.definingmomentspod.com. Follow me on Twitter at defmomentspod. That's at D-E-F moments pod. Search me on Facebook, Defining Moments Podcast. Follow me on Instagram at Defining Moments Podcast. That's all one word, at Defining Moments Podcast. Subscribe to Defining Moments Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed listening to this show, I would be extremely honored if you gave us a review. This helps boost this podcast so more people can find it. Go out and be a positive influence today, every day. Make someone smile. My name is Wong Lam, and I approve this podcast.